0: Well, uh, Church, as you would all be aware, marriage uh, is currently in the spotlight uh, of our society like never before. Um, This week, the High Court confirmed that there would be a postal vote uh, in relation to our marriage laws uh, to determine the public's attitude uh, to whether our marriage laws should be changed so that a couple of the same sex can can get married. Uh, This has prompted uh, a debate uh, which has seen uh, contributions from many different areas and uh, you would have to be in a a vacuum really to not have been exposed to some of those contributions uh, and uh, to hear them and the different arguments for whether there should be a change uh, or whether not. Uh, and I think it's reasonable for us as a church to ask the question, given that uh, uh, we are all uh, going to be provided with an opportunity to vote, and I think it's good for us to vote, uh, to express a view, and so therefore I think it's reasonable for us to say, well, what does God have to say about this matter? Uh, and subsequently, uh, the first place we start uh, is we go to the scriptures and, and asking that question. Um I might say that I don't think it's my job uh, as, as pastor to tell you how to vote. I think my job as pastor is certainly to preach the word of God to you. It's certainly to shepherd you and to declare what I understand to be uh, God's will. And then you need to take that and you've got a decision to make. Um, uh, you would have seen perhaps on television news last night a group of Christians saying that they thought that the law should change. Um, And at the end of the day, as followers of Jesus, we have a decision to make about what we are going to allow to inform us to make our decisions on matters like these and, quite frankly, matters in everyday life that we live. And we would submit that the Bible uh, and God's will is uttermost in the way that we reflect on these things. And and I want to do my best to bring that to you today. Now, what I want to actually say is that the traditional view of marriage has actually been under pressure in our society for quite some time. And that may come as a surprise, or you may not have been thinking about that because of the focus uh, on the current debate. But whether it's through uh, divorce or avoidance of marriage, uh, those two things have actually been increasing dramatically in Western society, Uh, for, I would say, the past few decades. So the idea of a man and woman uh, getting married married is actually under attack, if you like, or under pressure from very uh, different angles. So much so that it seems that record numbers are asking the question in relation to marriage, is it really worth it? Or equally as importantly, is it really possible? And for these reasons, I thought it would be timely to preach a message today called A Vision for Marriage and to affirm that the answer to both of those questions, I believe, is an unequivocal yes, that we can answer those questions with a yes. In fact, we want to suggest that marriage uh, is, isn't just worth it, but that it's an essential building block for a stable, flourishing society. And I'll talk a bit more about that as we go along That it's not just a sort of a thing that people do, but it's actually a gift from God that allows us to, dare I say it, be civilised, be organised, but also to flourish, even more importantly than those two things. And uh, we want to suggest that the picture that's presented in the scriptures, the one that's given us by God in relation to marriage, is an enduring, stable Monogamous marriage between a man and a woman uh, as the one that will allow us and our children to prevail and flourish as God intends. Now, before I proceed, I do need to acknowledge that uh, I spent a lot of time reading a book called The Meaning of Marriage, uh, which uh, is written by Tim Keller, a uh, US minister. Uh, some of you, who's ever heard of The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller? Okay, a few hands, a few hands. Hey, I strongly recommend that book. Uh, It's one that Judy and I often give out to uh, couples that we are counselling in the lead up to marriage. And uh, uh, it's actually good whether you're married or not, interestingly to say, uh, because it's uh, got a lot to say about singleness. Uh, as well as marriage, and actually cast singleness in quite a positive light, which is a reflection of the biblical testimony. Uh, I'd like to preach on singleness soon, but I, I won't have time to go into it to detail today. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about it as we go. Now, Timothy Keller notes that in Western culture today, uh, that it the culture views marriage with deep ambivalence. It doesn't only want to change it, but in some ways it wants to ignore it. Uh, Among the objections to marriage that we hear at times are that marriage was originally about property and is now in flux and not necessary, that marriage crushes individual identity and has been oppressive for women, that marriage stifles passion and is ill-fitted to psychological reality, and that marriage is just a piece of paper That only serves to complicate love. And that's just a few that come to mind, but there are many other uh, similar objections. And uh, I want to suggest again that none of those are true, that uh, all of them fail to stack up to the reality and the truth of marriage and its opportunities. In light of this, I want to cast here today for both single and married people a brutally realistic and yet a glorious vision for marriage. Because marriage does present us with many challenges. You might say that two sinful people marrying each other is a miracle. The fact that would you would contemplate it and that it would last, it's a miracle. Yet we want to suggest that it is a possibility uh, and a good one in uh, our society with the love and the help of God. So this vision will help married people, I hope, correct some mistaken views that might be harming their marriage. It's quite possible that that's going to happen for you today. But I also hope that it will help prevent single people from destructively over-desiring marriage and also destructively dismissing marriage altogether altogether. So we don't want to fall when it comes to marriage for either of those two traps to ignore it or to think that it's the be all and end all. And I want to suggest that this glorious vision for marriage is biblical, that it's of God, that it was given to us by God and that we can draw upon it. Now in the scriptures you could say there are three human institutions that stand apart from all others. They are the family the church and the state. Now I've heard it explained once that when it comes to you growing and becoming, if you like, a, a contributing member of society, the first uh, discipline that you experience is the family. All right, The first person that's going to tell you off and say, don't do that, you're going to kill yourself or you're going to kill someone, you lose an eye. Did your mum ever say that to you? Uh, that comes from your family. Then as we grow, we experience, uh, by God's grace, the love and the nurture and the shepherding and the pastoring of the church expressed through God's word as a family believer. So that becomes another influence until we move on and, and grow in maturity, not when we move on from the church, but it's part of our growth. The final one is the state. So it's, it's been presented to me that it's almost like a tier of discipline. Uh, firstly, you get the opportunity to listen to mum and dad. And you might do that and life will go well for you. Secondly, you may not listen to them, but you might listen to your church family. and then, But you might decide to ignore them and God as well. And then finally, the state will discipline you and you will submit to the laws of the state or you lose your freedom. So it's an interesting thing and it's scriptural in the way that it's presented to us in these levels of discipline. There's nothing in the Bible about how to run schools, hospitals, banks or bowling clubs. I apologise if you're looking for tips on those. You're not going to find them in the scriptures but there's plenty about the institution of marriage. Lots on the institution of marriage. The Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. That's a quote from it. In fact, God presided over the first wedding ceremony. Marriage is not a recent invention in order to allow for the orderly management of property, but instead at the climax of the creation account, God brings together a woman and a man and unites them in marriage. So let's read that passage that's found in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. And uh, I'm reading from the New Living Translation because it gives a particular wording of the final verse that uh, I would like to refer to. There it is. So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but there was still no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. Now, you might think, well, some of you have heard that many times. Uh, it's It's almost a quaint little story. It's man giving names to all the animals. That's meant to imply that man has dominion over the animals, but for the very best of reasons, That he's to look after God's creation and nurture it. Secondly, this image of the creation of woman has a very important implication in it. And that is that men and women are made for each other. They're made for each other in a way that is different from men only and women only. That there is a level of intimacy that is meant for men and women that can't be experienced through any other set of human beings, as it were. And Adam responds and says, At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from a man. So Adam says, There's nothing else in the world like my wife. She, she, she is of me. She is from me. She, you know, he senses an opportunity for intimacy. And an opportunity for a relationship that that he hasn't found anywhere else. And it's reflected very much in the fact that she's a woman and he's a man. That's a key part of the story. It's absolutely essential. And then the writer of Genesis goes on and gives us a clue for one of the reasons why this story was written. It's very helpful when the Bible does that. Luke does it a lot where he says, Jesus told this parable for this reason. I like those verses. They're really good. This is another one. This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and he's joined to his wife and the two are united as one. So the very act of you uh, growing along as a, as a person uh, and then uh, there comes this moment, if you like, where a new Relationship or a new family is formed, and man steps away from the and woman steps away from the families that they were raised in, and they come together. And the Bible says that they're joined, uh, and that the two are united as one. Now, last time I checked, at most wedding ceremonies, there's no operation. I mean, Judy and I didn't get you know attached physically. Uh, You know, uh, anything like that didn't go reverse, Siamese or anything like that. So um, something else is going on when this occurs. And it's this amazing uh, unity on so many different levels that occurs when a man and a woman are joined together in marriage. And the Bible is saying that the act of marriage between a male and a female reflects how we were made. That, that who you are is the motivation and it's the why male and female come together in marriage. And there's no biblical understanding or reflection for why that process is going to occur in the same way for a male and a male and a female and a female. There's no understanding of it, there's no talking about it. And I want to suggest, and the Bible speaks this elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, that... You don't need to be a follower of Jesus to understand this. That you can look at male and female and work this out. So that's why it's not only, I suggest, members of the Christian church that might vote no in this postal ballot, but many others will take the same view for similar reasons, but they may not even understand that they're actually following a biblical model. So, the Bible begins with this wedding and interestingly ends with another wedding in Revelation. Who gets married in Revelation, folks? Give me two two objects I need, Dave. The church and Jesus, another bride. So, isn't it beautiful how, you know, this wedding between male and female in the end becomes this amazing joining of Jesus to his church in such an intimate way uh, that really is is going to be an incredible thing. So marriage is God's idea and what he says, therefore what God says about marriage is is important. And this is why, uh, among other things, the Presbyterian service of marriage, Keller is a Presbyterian, he's giving me these quotes, says marriage is instituted by God regulated by his commandments and blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ. What God institutes, he also regulates, he speaks into. And if God invented marriage, then those who enter into it should make every effort to understand and submit to his purposes for it. Uh, The CRC's wedding rites suggest, which I've read many times in a wedding ceremony, marriage should not be entered into unadvisedly all lightly, but prayerfully, reverently, discreetly, and with careful thought. Isn't that a great phrase? Oh, that we would all take that approach. We should enter into every day of our marriage, not lightly or unadvisedly, but prayerfully, reverently, discreetly, and with careful thought. That's not a good approach to tomorrow, doesn't it, Jude? Duly considering the purpose for which it was ordained by God. So... Uh, I think it's important because sometimes perhaps one of the arguments we might hear is, well, okay, that's the Old Testament. You know, we're, now this is we're in the age of the New Testament, so we're doing different things and we can dispose of that and still call other marriages Christian. But we have to then find out uh, if Jesus had anything to say on this matter, and as it turns out, he did. Once he was questioned by the religious leaders of the day about the existence of the divorce law and this is how Jesus responded and he quoted Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and Genesis two twenty-four that we've just read. He, he goes straight to this and he says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, but at the beginning of creation God made them male and female and for this reason a man will leave his mother and be united to his father and mother and leave united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, this particular passage has caused um, controversy in the past in relation to divorce, and the church has tried to interpret it and work out how to outwork it, both in its own fellowship and in society. I think we need to note a couple of things. Firstly, Jesus didn't dispose of the diverse law. In fact, he recognised that its existence was necessary effectively for broken human beings. That There do come times when two people, because of sin, let's call it what it is, in one way or another, it means they can't live together anymore as a married couple. What Jesus does do is calls his followers to a higher standard when it comes to the use of the divorce law. Many of you would be aware at the time that a man could write a letter of divorce to his wife, just pen one, give it to her and that's it. They were done. I'm sick of you. You know, you burnt the... Uh, what do we have last night? You, I burnt the pizza. You burnt the pizza... Uh, You know, you're out. That's how it used to. And Jesus was just said this: that attitude to your marriage relationship doesn't reflect the miracle that's going on when you got married. And so He says, you you can't do that. Now, elsewhere, Matthew chapter nineteen, verse nine, He does make provision for a reason for divorce. He called it sexual immorality. Um, You might want to argue that other forms of immorality could be considered. When it comes to a couple getting divorced, I don't have time to go into that today. But I'm just telling you that Jesus did a couple of things on this point. He affirmed the Old Testament view of marriage. He affirmed the miracle that was going on when it occurred. And he also called his followers to a high standard when it comes to divorce. He, he said that you know it shouldn't be done in a way that might be considered selfish or anything of that nature. But he also made provision for when it might occur. So Jesus did affirm the biblical pattern for what marriage is and who is involved, male and female, and uh, he did um, offer that, that insight. Now I want to as surprising as it might be to you, we're not the first generation of Christians who have had to challenge the perceptions of our culture about what marriage uh, is all about. The teaching of scripture confronts our contemporary Western culture's narrative that individual freedom is the only way to be happy. Our our, our, our teaching on marriage confronts that. At the same time, it also critiques how traditional cultures perceive the unmarried adult to be less than a fully formed human being. Did you hear what I said then? Okay, so the scripture critiques firstly our idea that individual freedom is the only way to be happy. So the opportunity is that through marriage we might serve another, we might take their needs into account and we might even devote a significant part of our life to serving them. It critiques the idea that you wouldn't do that, that I'll just have sex with whoever I want, I don't need to get married. So it allows for the fact that marriage actually might be something worth considering. But it then won't allow society to say, if you're not married, you are empty in some way, you are not fully formed in some way, you are incomplete in some way. The Bible will critique that view as well. And I know... As parents, often we like to talk to our kids sometimes about relationships. And this pastor has been known at times to say to his kids, I would like eight grandchildren, uh, four each, please. You know, I'm ready to go. But, you know, I have to actually watch that language that comes out of my mouth because that marriage may or may not be part of God's plan for my children. And it may be they might get married and not have kids, and it may be they don't get married ever or for a very long time. And the idea that I would sit here as a dad and in some way be frustrated by that is not biblical. That's just wrong, okay? I'd like them to experience the joys of marriage like I do, but I need to submit to how God is outworking his will and his ways through their life. The New Testament writers lifted up long-term singleness as a legitimate way to live in a manner that astonished the pagan world at that time the book of genesis also critiques the institution of polygamy uh, even though it was accept an accepted cultural practice at the time of writing by vividly depicting the misery and havoc that it played with family relationships the pain that it caused uh, especially for women in other words, the teaching of the biblical authors challenged their own culture's belief on marriage at, a time, at the time. It wasn't simply a product of them, and therefore we can't write it off as anachronistically regressive or culturally obsolete. The Bible message on marriage is actually one of good news for all people, and it's one that is desperately needed today for some reasons that I'm about to get through. So do you hear what I'm saying here? The fact that we're in a debate and a discussion on marriage, that's happened before for the church. And and it's happened for God's people for centuries. So we shouldn't be alarmed by that. And we should be ready to speak out, you know, God's truth into that situation in the same way that they have in the past. Now, is that okay, church? We're covering a lot of territory here. (laughs) Okay. Okay. all right, we'll get to the end. Um, but I want to give you a, a few insights uh, into some things that might lead to a, a critique of marriage, and, and we'll give some figures on that. You're hanging in there, church? Do you need a break? Just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. I might have shouted a bit too much on Thursday night at the bowling. Okay. All right. Over the last 40 years, the leading marriage indicators, uh, that is the, the indicators of marriage health and satisfaction, have been in decline. The divorce rate uh, has nearly doubled, leading to a slump in the number of adults who are married and an increase in the number of babies born out of wedlock. This wariness and pessimism about marriage has led many to seek something of a sort of a go-between between between marriage uh, and more mere mere sexual encounters, which is cohabitation with a sexual partner. It's sort of like a try-as-you-buy option, with the idea being that it increases the chances of a successful marriage when it arrives or makes it easier to go back if things don't go well. There's only one problem with that idea. It doesn't work. A Gallup survey conducted in the United States in 2002 made this statement A substantial body of evidence indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. That's incredible. What's that all about? Uh, you you could have made an argument that it was different, but apparently it's statistically proven that it's not. Now, no one is actually quite sure why, but one reason that's been put forward is to live with someone without making the marriage commitment becomes a blockage for developing intimacy. So you're trying to be intimate with this person that hasn't, if you like, been given to you in marriage and so therefore there is limits on that developing and uh, that it causes a failure when marriage comes, if it does, to be intimate with each other and can lead to the breakup relationship. That's one of the ideas. Um, the other idea that it's easy to go back, many of you might be aware that it's now been ascertained that through the uh, act of sexual intercourse, incredible chemical changes take place in the male and the female. And one of them that I've heard of is for a female, her body literally chemically binds to her male sexual partner. And in marriage, it's beautiful. Uh, I encourage having sex as a marriage aid. Uh, it literally chemically helps <laughs> and uh, it's a joy. So if you're not in that marriage relationship, you're having sex. And then the breakup occurs. It's why they are incredibly painful, incredibly painful, because you are literally <laughs> changing your body chemistry as it happens in a, in a powerful way. So the Bible's prohibition on sex outside of marriage is there for a very good reason. Sex plays a role in marriage. It's to be protected by the commitment of marriage and to engage in it Elsewhere is literally to play with fire that that can lead you to get seriously burnt. So there you go. Here are some other um, surprising statistics that push back against common assumptions about marriage. It's true apparently that the divorce rate is about 45% of marriages. But apparently the great percentage of those who get divorced are those who marry before the age of 18 who've dropped out of high school and who have had a baby before marrying. They've they've determined this. So the Gallup study concluded in 2009, this is another one, if you're a reasonably well-educated person with a decent income, you come from an intact family, you are religious and you marry after 25 without having a baby first, sorry, You can have babies, but don't have one before you get married. Has everyone got that straight? If you do all of these things, your chances of divorce are low. That that The possibility of actually having a happy marriage, uh, a a, a lasting marriage, I should say, because I'm about to say something else about happiness, is actually quite possible. Now, I should say at this point, um, I I might be speaking about... Marriage in a fairly clinical way, and that God's grace is available uh, for everyone who experiences divorce because we are broken people. Uh, If divorce is a sin, then forgiveness for sin is available in Jesus Christ. God is, it was once said, not the God of a second chance, but the God of another chance. And while our difficulties in relationships, and especially marriage relationships, do leave and take a toll on us. Grace and God's love and mercy is available for everyone to find their way forward when it comes. So I really want to make sure that we leave that message with everyone here today. Now here's one that really shocked me. You're going to, you're going to like this one. There is a stunning fact about unhappy marriages that really puts a sword to the common belief that divorce is the best solution in such circumstances. You know, people, oh, I'm not happy you know I'm going to get divorced. In a 2002 longitudinal study in the US called Does Divorce Make People Happy? It showed that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. Incredible. Do you ever hear that reported anywhere? I'll say it again for you. Two-thirds, 66% of unhappy marriages they measured this, will become happy within five years if the couple doesn't get divorced. Credible. So I would encourage you uh, to remember that. And this prompted the University of Chicago sociologist Linda J. wait White, to say the benefits of divorce have been oversold. Interesting reflection. And as far as I know, these aren't uh, Christian researchers. This is just study stuff that's done in the States to measure this. So there's some interesting facts about divorce and about marriage that hopefully might give you a different framework. So how did we get here? How did we get into this state where marriage seems to have been so hard and destined to fail for so many despite some of the figures that I've just mentioned. Legal scholar John White, Jr. said the earlier idea that marriage was a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. What used to be a framework for lifelong devotion and love between a husband and a wife has now morphed into finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. It sounds like a mouthful, I know. Judy's wanting me to simplify this very quickly so I can communicate with you clearly. One way of saying it is marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. That's the transformation that's happened in marriage in our time. It's no longer the thought of I would like to give myself to you, but how are you planning to give yourself to me? And how are you going to make me happy and how are you going to change my life? So such approach to marriage uh, is destined to failure and this is why we need a new vision for marriage. Now as we move towards our conclusion today, I want to turn to uh, one of the most uh, powerful teachings on marriage that's ever been recorded and it, interestingly it was written by a single man, a guy that wasn't married. His name was? Paul, the Apostle Paul. And this is what he came up with as a picture which is a passage that uh, has been part of lots of weddings that I've conducted and we're going to read it together here today. Submit to one another, it starts... Out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit submit to their husbands in everything. They got three verses. Husbands get seven. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's that scripture again, Genesis two, twenty four. This is a proud, profound ministry. Sorry. Why didn't somebody tell me I hadn't done that? Well. Thanks, Chief. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now this passage also, you could say it's a loaded passage, and I'd agree with that. It's loaded with a lot of stuff. Firstly, the idea that um, a woman should submit to her husband, it's proved contentious for many years. We need to note that it begins, firstly, with an instruction that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So uh, the um, instruction of submission is made within a mutual submission. Does that make sense? I hope it does. The wife is not the only one that needs to do some submission here. Paul then paints a picture that her submission is an act of worship to Jesus it's to reflect the activity of worship of the church uh, and and towards Jesus and that it's an act of her worship to him. Also note, please, it's addressed to wives. So if I ever hear of a husband quoting that verse to his wife, I'm going to knock on your door and twist your ears. Am I allowed to say that in church? Please don't. It's not written to you. So never, never use it as a weapon or as a, a something to preach to your wife about how she needs to act towards you. It's not written to you. The next bit's for you. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loves the church. How did Jesus love the church, husbands? Say that word again. He died for it. He died for it. Husbands, have you resigned yourself to the fact that, that you are called on to die for your wife? Physically? Have you got that straight in your head? Have you ever told your wife, as the Bible instructs me, I'm prepared to give up my life for you, physically and otherwise? Have you sorted that out? Once I really felt moved to tell my kids that I would die for them. I remember we were sitting around the table and I said, I just want you to know, Josh and Em." that I am ready to die for you, physically if necessary. And my son's looking at me like this. I don't know whether he was scared that he had to do the same thing when he got married or whatever. But he it got his attention. And I said, you'd be sad for a while and I, I trust you'd mourn for me, but don't, don't get down about it because it's my calling, according to the scriptures, to die for my family. I'd be following in the footsteps of my Lord and Saviour. Now, wives, you might have a problem thinking about submitting to your husband, but would you be prepared to submit to someone who's ready to die for you? Because that's the mystery of marriage that's presented in the Scriptures. So, husbands, you get a long list. Yours is, be like Jesus Sacrifice for your wife and your kids. Be prepared to give your life physically if necessary. And in so doing, wash your wife. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It is at times a legitimate thing to look at how a husband's travelling by looking at how his wife is faring in life. Does she present as someone who, you know, is just not a happy person? Now, there could be other reasons for that sometimes, but sometimes it can be traced back to how well the husband's doing in this. Because it's my ministry to her as an act of worship to Jesus to nurture her, to care for her, to sacrifice for her, to act in service towards her. So uh, when I think of those things to do, it's my Christian calling to do that. And Paul refers to it in that passage as a profound mystery. That the act of Jesus dying for humans is a profound mystery. That the act of a husband and wife serving and submitting in marriage is a profound mystery. But in the same way that we experience an unattainable joy when we worship together Jesus as a church, So when we dedicate and devote ourselves to each other according to that biblical pattern, marriage becomes amazing, a miracle, a mystery. And friends, I want to submit and suggest that that level of connection as Paul now repeats, as Jesus repeated and as was first stated in the book of Genesis, is made for a male and a female. And it's only in that space that that's going to be experienced. Church, I've left you with a challenge today. I've left you with the biblical story of marriage and what it looks like when it comes down to those that give themselves to each other in marriage. And my challenge today before we pray is to say the following things. Firstly, to people that are unmarried... The invitation for you is not to over-desire nor to dismiss marriage. It's not to do one or the other. Marriage uh, is beautiful and it's hard. (laughs) It's it's miraculous and sometimes uh, it feels like misery. It's got both elements. So it's not the be-all and end-all, but at the same time, It is the vehicle for you to experience intimacy with another person, with a human, another person of the opposite sex. It's the vehicle that God has given you. Marriage, your challenge is to give yourself to and for your spouse, and in doing so, reflect the saving work of Jesus in your own life and in your life to them. For those who are single again, or have gone through a divorce and are remarried, know that Jesus is the redeemer of all things and that ultimately his marriage to you will never end. If you were once married and now aren't, but you've said yes to Jesus Christ, there's another wedding ceremony coming in your life. It's already occurred in your uniting with Jesus, but Jesus unites himself eventually to the church in a way that can almost not be imagined. And finally, for those who who haven't accepted Jesus, know that Jesus has already given himself to you and that by accepting him, you actually gain possession of the mystery, the secret that makes marriage work. It's essential and an important part to understanding what marriage really is. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the picture that is being presented today from your word about what marriage is, why marriage is, what it looks like and how it flourishes under your hand. And Lord, we pray today that you would help us to take this information, that you would help us to share this information and Lord, that it would inform us when we vote in relation to the postal ballot that our government has invited us to take part in. Father, I thank you also for the fact that you are the redeemer of everyone. Those who experience same-sex attraction, those who have gone through divorce, those who are struggling in marriage, those who want to be married but can't be, Lord, you are the one that nurtures all life, that invites everyone into a marriage with you as we say yes to you to be our Lord and our Saviour. And one day you'll consummate that marriage in a wedding feast, a union in the new heavens and earth that we look to and wonder just what that might involve. Lord... I pray for every single person here today, whatever their circumstances are at the moment in relation to marriage, that you would touch their hearts, that you would encourage them, that they would look towards you and that they would know that you are the great Redeemer and you are the one that makes marriage work. Lord, for all of these things, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we are close to time.